You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. I'm going to ask you to be seated this morning before we get into Revelation 13. Um, as a church, we're walking through 40 days of prayer, started last Wednesday. And uh, Saturday's devotional from our book really caught my attention. It really fits in well with, with where we're going today in Revelation 13. I just want to read a little bit out of this because it really caught my attention and I, I thought that, that this is something I needed to share with you uh, or maybe remind you of what you read on Saturday along with me. What has you in its hold? What has a hold of your heart? Don't rush to answer that question. Stop and give this question some consideration. What do you feel you can't live without? What has the ability to make or break your day? What has the power to make you very sad? What can produce almost instant happiness? The loss of what would leave, what, the loss of what would leave you a bit depressed. What do you tend to attach your identity to? What tends to control your wishes? What do, you, what do others have that causes you to envy? If you could get just one thing, what would it be? The absence of what tempts you to question God's goodness? What does your use of money tell you about what's important to you? What fills your fantasies and your dreams? What would the videos of your last six weeks reveal about what has you in its hold? What physical idols tempt you the most? What relational idols attract you the most? Is there a place where you're asking the creation to do what only the creator can do? He goes on to say this, it is possible to think that you are a God worshiper because he is the object of your formal religious worship. But when it comes to the day-to-day -day affections of your heart, something or someone else could be in control. And it's not always that we are under the control of evil things. Often good things have control over us that they should not have. As I have written elsewhere, good things become bad things when they become ruling things. Why ask you to bow your heads? Those questions that I, that I just posed to you out of this book from this author, I think it demands that we slow down for just a minute and we consider the affections and the desires of our heart and what's really there. We, so often we come into this place and I'm as guilty as anyone of putting on a mask and hiding what's really behind my smile. And so often we, we come in and we, we ask the question, well, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. How are you doing? Well, I'm fine. When in fact, we're not fine at all. And the scary thing is, is that we can get into the habit of practicing a religion while at the same time our heart be cold and indifferent. And these questions are meant to bring to the surface what really has our heart and what really has our attention. So if, if, we, if you were to pull up your history file on the internet for the last six weeks and show it to your spouse or your friend, what would it say about what has your heart? What would it say about your allegiance? 
What does your checkbook ledger say about how you spend your money? What does it say about where your heart is really aligned? The way you spend your time, the things that worry you, the things that, that depress you, the things that will cause you to change who you are because of that thing. I want you to name it this morning to yourself. I want you to name it. I want you to admit it. I want you to call out to God. I want you to agree with God that what that is in your heart is none other than an idol, none other than a false god, none other than something that has control of your life that was never meant to have control, that much control of your life. Maybe it's another person. Maybe a relationship. Maybe your job. Maybe it's fame. But anything that takes the place of your creator, anything in the creation that takes the place of the creator that's in your life and in your heart, well, that's an idol. So, Father, this morning we come to you and we ask that we need help with this. Because, Father, so often these things can take hold of our life. And, Father, we don't have the strength in us to say no. We don't have the strength in us to quit. We don't have the strength in us to walk away from it. So, so Father, we need your help. We need your guidance. We need the Holy Spirit to, to help us to, to overcome and walk beyond and get beyond this idol that we've got in our heart. So, Father, we recognize right now that we lay bare before you. There is nothing hidden. There, there is nothing we can say. There's nothing we can do. There's no covering that we can put on that hides what's really in our heart that you see with that eye that penetrates right to our soul. And right now in this moment, Father, you see it. You know what it is. And Father, I pray that you put your hand on it, that you put your finger right on it, that the Holy Spirit would bring to the surface what that thing is. And Father, as we recognize it, as we see it, as we take responsibility for it, we realize just how much control that this thing has in our life that it was never meant to have. Our flesh wants us to keep it. The forces of darkness want us to hold on to it. But Father, right now in this moment, we recognize that we can't hold on to it and reach out to you. We can't hold on to it and worship you. We can't hold on to it and experience your blessings. We can't hold on to it and as a church body, experience revival. So in this moment, we must make a choice. Right now, in this moment. And Father, we must repent which means to have a change of mind, which leads to a change of heart, which leads to a change of actions in our life, that we agree with you that this thing is sinful, we agree with you that this thing is an idol, we agree with you that this thing is hurting us, not helping us. We agree with you, Father, that, that we are missing the mark, that something else is getting our worship other than you. And so, Father, right now we confess it. Father, right now we let go of it. Father, right now, in your power, in your presence, in your strength, right now, we make the commitment to you through the power of the Holy Spirit that tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Friday morning, that we're going to continue to lean to you and the strength that we need from you to overcome this thing that we keep running to. Father, we want revival. We want Lives change. We want to see corporately from this fellowship, this church. We want to be a light in this dark community. But Father, as long as our hearts are aligned to some false God, we will never fulfill our mission and our duty.
We will never fulfill it. So, Father, forgive us for asking for your blessings while at the same time holding on to a false God. We thank you for the freedom that you give. We thank you for the forgiveness that is found through the blood of Jesus Christ. Cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Cleanse us and make us whole. We ask it in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. We'll ask you to stand as we read God's word if you're able and willing this morning. Revelation chapter 13, as we continue to walk through this challenging book, verse 1, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems or crowns on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? You can be seated. I am constantly amazed at uh, some of the things that I'm reading right now in our current culture, especially among um, our younger generations, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, and what they're struggling with. And one of, the thing that, one of the things that's constantly getting my attention, and I see it in our culture, I see it over and over again, whether it be a news broadcast or something that I've, I've seen on the internet, is the reality that where we are in our culture right now is there is a drastic increase in spirituality and people desiring spiritual things. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. So on the one hand, our culture is getting more and more anti-faith, but at the same time, young people are searching out spiritual uh, spiritual experiences, gurus, uh, influencers. And so if you have a conversation with your average 20 or 30-year-old, and I've had a lot of them, they are deeply looking for answers to big life questions such as, why am I here? What's my purpose? Is it just to, to get a college degree and then get a job and earn some income and then maybe get married and have a family and you know live out 30, 40, 50 years at the plant or at the factory or at the school and, and then retire? Is, is that all there is? is? Is it just to get a paycheck or is there something more to life? You see, those kinds of questions are deeply spiritual questions. Many of you are asking those same questions. So what is happening is, is there is this renewal of, of looking for spiritual experiences. And people are doing all kinds of, quite frankly, the only way I know to put it is just wacky things, just really out there, to try to find some kind of answer to these life questions. So they are, they are seeking a spiritual experience, but, but at the same time that's happening, they are denying absolute truth. Now this is interesting. So while they're looking for some kind of God out there, some kind of meaning to life, the one thing that they are adamantly opposed to is any group of people that says, well, here is the truth. And the truth is, from my perspective and the perspective of the Bible, there's only one way to salvation. His name is Jesus Christ. You will not find it in any other guru, any other religious leader. 
He is the only way to salvation. So when I, when I say that, it is almost offensive because the, the one cardinal sin of culture now is what they label as intolerance. And intolerance means anything that disagrees with them. So the idea that there is one truth, one absolute truth, is, is lost on a lot of people. So here's the danger. They are looking for a spiritual experience separated from truth. And let me just say to you, it's dangerous. Because the reality is, if you're looking for something spiritual apart from absolute truth, guess this, you will find it. The world will provide it for you. And you can experience all of that. Even a, a religious experience that's all about you and all about your needs and wants. But where it will lead you is just as empty as you feel today. It will not answer your questions. It will not give you purpose and it certainly won't give you meaning for this life. So the danger is spirituality apart from truth. Most of my adult life, uh, growing up in the church, especially in the 90s and 2000s, early 2000s, the, the big debate in the world was really between these two categories. And it, it, it really focused on the debate around science and what is true. So at that period of, life, period of time in my life, uh, science was presented as the God of all gods. It, it was the one that can provide all of your answers. All you need to do is, is take something into a laboratory or you need to do enough research, and through that you can find out what is true. So for years of my life as following Jesus, uh, there was this constant conflict between the church, the Christian faith, and science. And that's where we came up with all of the, the debates that you know well if you grew up during that same time frame of the debate between evolution and creationism. And you had entire ministries that started during that time frame. Uh, Ken Ham and all this going on up in, in Ohio, I think it is, northern Ohio, where he has an ark and a museum. And the whole point of that ministry is to show you that the six days of creation is actually what happened rather than beings and beings of years. But have you noticed that no one's asking those questions anymore? Have you noticed that that debate has almost went dead silent? Nobody's even talking about it. And for years of my life following Jesus, that's all the focus was, is how that science contradicts the Bible and how the theologians were taking the Bible and saying, no, it doesn't contradict. It actually enhances our understanding of the world. But interestingly, we've changed. Now, what I'm describing to you in that time where science was, was God we define that as the modern era. But now we live in a new era, and there's de debate on when this time actually started. I think there's kind of an overlap. But somewhere right around the 80s and 90s, we started shifting to a different worldview, a different mindset, and this is what we call postmodernism. Maybe you've heard that. Post meaning after modernism. In other words, we have a new worldview. And make no mistake about it, among our 20-somethings and our 30-somethings and, and younger, th th this is the worldview that most of them hold. And here, here's what it is. Science is no longer the answer. As a matter of fact, science doesn't really provide what is true. Here's what provides truth. It's how you feel. You get to determine what is true. And that's how you and that's how I can sit down in a room with two or three people, and I'm going to use this as an illustration, not literally. But we can all throw the question out, what is two plus two? One person can say seven, one person can say six, another person can say ten, and I can say four. And in postmodernism, we can all walk out arm in arm saying we're all correct. Because it's not about the science that two plus two is actually four. It's about how you feel what two and two 
actually equals. And if you feel it's seven, then you can have, and here it is, here's the grand statement we hear every week, you can have your truth and I can have mine. That's postmodernism, well, at its core. So here's what we have. We have a whole generation, two generations, maybe even three generations of people who are seeking a spiritual experience apart from absolute truth. And now let's throw into the mix this whole idea that it's how I feel that determines what is true. Now, I'm going to tell you that that is a cocktail that will bring destruction into your life. And we've got a whole generation of people now who are depressed, who are anxious, because they have run headlong down this road that the culture is telling them that you can find meaning. They run down that road only to find that it's a dead end. The bridge is out. There's really nothing to find here. So what do they do? They go look for another spiritual guru. They look for another experience, all to fulfill what they believe is true. Now, how does that fit into Revelation 13? What I'm going to argue this morning is where our culture is right now is absolutely, positively setting the stage for what we're going to see in the future with this kingdom and this king that arises. Last week, we saw where Satan had been defeated over and over and over again. And what's happening during this period of time, just to refresh your memories, what's happening as we walk through the book of Revelation, you have the first event, the first event that I believe and this church believes, the first event of God's timetable is the rapture. That is the physical removal of those who are following Jesus at the time that that trumpet blows. From that point, the world begins to lapse into chaos. And during that chaos and through several events, there's going to be a world leader who will arise. And this world leader, according to what we see in Scripture, what we're going to look at today, this world leader is going to have all the answers. He's going to have incredible power and incredible influence. He is not going to have red horns on his head and a, and a pointy tail and a pitchfork. He's actually going to be, well, very charismatic. He's going to be the guy who just seems to have all the answers. And the world's attention is going to be turned on him to such a degree, as we continue to walk through this, we're going to see that nations are going to lay down their sovereignty and hand it over to this king and his kingdom. Because he is so well-liked, he is so powerful, he is so influential, that not only will he become a ruler of the earth, a ruler of the world, which is completely outside of our context of thinking. We've never seen anything like that, not in our lifetimes. But the interesting thing is that he will declare himself as God. So not only will he be a political ruler, but he will also be, in his mind and in his eyes, a God to be worshipped. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've been back to this chapter a couple of times. I want to take you back there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to hear what Paul writes to this church about this man called the man of lawlessness. He is what we understand to be the Antichrist. So let's talk about him and let's look at him. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, pick it up in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of, object of worship. Now listen to this. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be 
God. Go back to Revelation. Now, if you're thinking that this time of lawlessness upon the earth that we've already looked at as God has poured out his wrath, if you begin to think that during that time, all worship is going to cease. In other words, it's going to be a time of atheism where people don't believe in God and they're just going to, they're just going to reject religion and, and, and just, they're just going to live how they want to live. You would be very, very wrong. As a matter of fact, during this time of great wrath that God pours out on this earth, get this, people are worshiping. Worshiping more than they've ever worshipped before. As a matter of fact, the world is going to be aligned and the people of this planet are going to be aligned and they're going to worship together and they're going to worship the Antichrist. See, the reality is, is every human being has been made to worship. You are made to worship. You've been created by God to worship. The question is, is what are you worshiping? During this time, they're going to be given something to worship. Let's pick it up in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. So if we go back to chapter 12, what did we see? We saw Satan being defeated over and over and over again. Every time that he tried to overthrow God, he is judged and, well, thwarted by God himself. So the first thing we saw in last week's text was back in Back in eternity past, back years ago, Satan decided that he was going to get together a little coup of angels and they're going to overthrow God. And of course, God throws him out of heaven, throws him down to the earth. And then at that point, Satan and his demons begin to focus their attention on God's prized creation. Well, we also read last week that there was a point in time along that journey of time and history that, that Satan tries to attack over and over again, specifically looking for a son that would be born based on what God said to him in the garden at the fall, that, that there would be a, a seed, a son of, of Eve that would come, that would crush his head. So he begins to look, and he begins to seek. And we know that in Bethlehem at that moment when Mary was giving birth to Jesus, we know that this dragon, Satan himself, was lurking about looking to destroy Jesus at that moment. Who does he empower to do it? None other than Herod himself, who then kills a bunch of children in Bethlehem under the age of two, that was Satan in the background working to destroy the sun. So all through chapter 12, we see Satan being defeated. Then at some point in the future, we understand that the Bible teaches that Satan has access to God, some level of access to God, but there will be a time where he will rise up again against God and God will cast him out of heaven and he'll no longer have access. And at that time, the Bible says he'll come back in his wrath will be on fire. He will want to destroy every vestige of God's image on this earth. And guess who bears his image? Humanity. Specifically those who are still worshiping and putting their faith in Christ during this time. He's going to want to destroy them. So what does he do? In chapter 13, he's now going to give power to a being. It's described here as a beast, a great dragon-looking beast. And and this is all symbolic for who this leader is going to be. This leader is going to be empowered by Satan himself. This leader we know to be the lawless one, the Antichrist himself. Notice that he rises up out of the sea, the sea representative of humanity, that this leader is going to be raised out of humanity at that time. And, and notice that this beast has horns and heads and diadem speaking to his kingdom and his power and his great influence. In the weeks ahead, we're going to look at, take a, lot of a, a long look at this kingdom that he builds. But for now, all of this represents great authority, great power, great um, influence. Verse 2, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet was like a bear, its mouth was like a lion. 
that gets back, it goes back to some imagery in Daniel chapter 7 that was written years before uh, John's revelation. The, the same imagery that Daniel uses in chapter 7, this is the same kind of imagery that John is seeing now. Notice what the dragon or Satan does with this lawless one. It says, and to it and to the beast, the dragon, who is Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. So here's what you have. You have a earthly leader who is going to be given authority by Satan himself. Now remember, I told you weeks ago, and I told you this, warning you as we got into this, that Satan is not some kind of idea for evil. He is a literal being who walks upon the earth. He's not shoveling coal into a fireplace down in hell. He is now seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. He walks upon the earth. And there are angels, fallen angels, demons, who are aligned with him and part of his kingdom. So here we have, in chapter 13, this literal Satan calling for a literal leader to come out of humanity, and this leader is going to be given great power, great authority, and even the very throne of Satan. Here's what you have. You have in this leader, the Antichrist, you have Satan basically with flesh on. Satan, who is in the spiritual realm, is now going to empower a human being to the point that this human being, the lawless one, is basically Satan incarnate, Satan with flesh on. Satan who is now upon the throne, but he now has a body. He can be seen. He can be heard. He can be worshipped. Notice what happens. It says, um, verse 3, one of the heads of this beast uh, received a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled. This is really incredible. So what John sees and what he tells us is that one of the heads of this great beast that Satan has brought out of the, the sea, who is the Antichrist, representing not only his kingdom, but the Antichrist himself, that, that the Antichrist is going to receive a, 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 a death wound. He's going to die, basically. He's going to, from a sword, he is going to receive a wound. I, based on what John says, his head is nearly severed from his body. You don't survive that kind of a wound. So some part during his reign, some part during his kingdom, the world is going to see the Antichrist attacked and killed by a sword. Now, as we saw with the witnesses back in chapter 11, we, we talked about how that now the technology is available today for you to see something live on your phone as it's happening halfway around the globe. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we didn't have that. Now we do. And I believe that what's, what we're seeing here is that the world is going to be able to see this. They're going to be able to witness it. That this great leader that, that all these nations have given power to and authority to and sovereignty to, that king, that leader is going to be wounded. And everybody's going to say, well, he's a goner. He's gone. He's dead. Guess what happens? John sees that even after this beast, this Antichrist is dead, get this, he comes back to life. Does that sound familiar? You have Satan empowering this being, giving him his throne. While he's leading the world and misleading the world and they begin to worship him, they begin to consider him. Maybe he's worth worshiping. All of a sudden, the world witnesses him be killed, be slaughtered, only to come back to life. And I have to wonder if it wasn't three days later. We're not told that specifically. So we have the very Antichrist 
who is pulling off a phony death and resurrection, and notice what the world does. The world falls at his feet. They marvel at the beast. They worship the dragon who is Satan. They worship the beast who's been given authority. And get this, they say among themselves, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? So here's what the world's doing. The world who is ready and primed for a spiritual experience, the world who has separated itself from absolute truth, the world who is looking to have all of their needs met and has at the center of their universe them, who've determined that how they feel is what is true. They see this play out on TV. They see it play out, and they're watching it over and over and over again of a man who was dead and now is alive. And the whole world comes to a conclusion that this man is not only a king, this man is not only a leader, this man is the God we've been looking for. Are you beginning to see why where we are today sets the stage for what's going to happen in the future. They will be falling all over themselves to worship this man. I had the opportunity to, to travel to China on three different occasions. And um, on all three of those trips, I got to see all the sights. I got to, to hike on the Great Wall, which was just amazing. I, I got to uh, go to Tiananmen Square, the, one of the largest squares in the world. And um, and I'm telling you, it is, it is large. It's massive. And on all three of those occasions, I got to stand in Tiananmen Square and just the massiveness of this, this square where there's thousands of people. And, and when I'm standing there, when I look to one side of the square, I see the communist Chinese authority, the, the government building. It's a massive building over here. On the other end of the square is what's called the Forbidden City. It's a, it's a city that goes all the way back to the, the, the dynasties of China, and you can go in there and tour and see how China lived and how they, the government worked back in those dynasties that we know in history. And, and at the entrance of the, of the Forbidden City is this massive painting of someone who is revered in China by the name of Chairman Mao. So this side you have the government buildings, on that end you have the Forbidden City, on this end of, the, of Tiananmen Square, you have a building that if you, if you were standing there and looked at it, you'd go, man, that building looks rather familiar. Well, there's a reason it looks familiar. It was built and designed after the Lincoln Memorial. Now, it doesn't have a Lincoln setting in there. It's kind of closed off. But what they do have in there is the body of someone they revere in a glass casket, Chairman Mao. And, and what happens is, we were there on Sunday. I think all three times I was there, I was on Sunday, maybe not. But nonetheless, what was very interesting to me is, is people would line up for blocks. I'm talking city blocks to be able to go in and see Chairman Mao in this building. Because for many of the Chinese people, they believe that, that Chairman Mao was one of the greatest leaders to ever lead their country. Now, keep in mind that the Chinese people don't have access to all of the information about Chairman Mao. They are held in darkness to a great degree. They don't have the opportunity to search on Google about Chairman Mao, but if they were able to do it, you know what they would find out? They would find out that Chairman Mao was one of the, if not the number one, serial killer the world has ever known. He killed somewhere between 50 and 65 million of his own people. So you think about Hitler. You think about Hitler being the, the worst mass murderer of all time? Chairman Mao exceeds him by tenfold. And yet, and yet... People line up for blocks and stand in line for hours just to be able to see what they worship, even almost 
to a God. So, folks, this whole idea of worshiping a man, our history is littered with it. If you, you go back through history, you can find it over and over. If you look at Hitler, you'll find that there were people that were literally worshiping Hitler. I said that every one of you, every human being is created to worship. The question is, is what's going to have a hold of your heart? What's going to rule your heart? Our world is primed and ready. Our world is primed for such a leader as this. The world is looking for somebody to, and you've heard this, they're looking for someone to get rid of all the division. Can we not just, can we not just take all of the money that all the countries have? And let's, just, let's just put it in one big world bank. And Can we just have one currency and, and maybe one nation? Let's get rid of all these borders around countries. Let's just get rid of all that. Because that's racist. Let's get rid of all that. Let's, let's just be one big nation with one set of leaders awaiting one key leader where he can lead us to this place of utopia. Our world is primed and ready for it. Even now. More so than any time in my life. Pick it up in verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. You see that word blasphemous? Blasphemy, that word is repeated over and over. What is blasphemy? It is speaking evil of God. It's not just, it's not just disagreeing with God. It is, it is accusing God of evil. It is, it is cursing God. So what you have with this Antichrist who is seated upon the throne of Satan, we shouldn't be surprised that he is blaspheming Jehovah God. And get this, all who worship this Antichrist, guess what they will be doing? They will be joining in because he's God, not the God of Christianity. But this, this man is God. Look what he can do. Notice this. He says, and it was allowed, he was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So at the same time, we see power and authority vested into this Antichrist. We are reminded yet again, and John does this over and over again. John reminds us that it's only for a season. We're reminded of the sovereignty and the providence of God that yes, this being is going to have a lot of power. Yes, he's going to have a lot of influence, but make no mistake about it. He is under the thumb of God. He is not all powerful. He has 42 months, three and a half years. And in God's sovereignty and providence, God is going to allow him to have this power and to have this authority. But as we will soon see in the weeks ahead, there is coming a day where all will bow the knee and all will be corrected. Look at verse 6. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. He is also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, where this is building towards, and we're going to see this, what this is building towards is if, if you have a man who's declaring himself as God, you have a man with great power and authority, empowered by Satan, pretty much Satan with flesh on, then there's going to come a point in time where all those who oppose him are going to have to be dealt with. There's, there's going to come a point where we can't have two groups of people. You're either with us or you're against us. And if you're against us, something has to be done with you. It's interesting to me that in our culture, we've moved from this idea of Okay, the church, local church, Christianity, yeah, okay, that's probably a good thing. And, you know, it helps people and changes people's lives. No big deal. You guys go ahead and, and do what, you're, what you want to do. Now we're moving to a time in our culture where we are being portrayed as an enemy 
of power. Why is that? Because we won't surrender the truth. You no doubt been called all kinds of things on your social media platforms for things that you've posted. You see, that's changed. The animosity of the hatred for what is true and what is right and what is good and what is holy is growing. It's growing. You, you have to see that. Our brothers and sisters all over the world who, are, who have been following Jesus for a long time, they've been experiencing this their entire life. As a matter of fact, they don't know what it's like to follow Jesus and not be persecuted. And not only do they embrace that suffering, not only do they embrace it, but that suffering that they endure, they give that as glory back to God. And, and folks, I'm here to tell you that I'm not a prophet, don't claim to be. I can just look and see where things are heading based on God's word. It's, it's going to get more difficult for you to name the name of Jesus in the culture. You've already experienced it. Some of you have already caught the tail end of, of what it means to follow Jesus publicly. He says, John says here, he will utter blasphemies, not only against God, but against those who follow him, against those in heaven. And he'll make war on the saints and he will conquer them. Under the authority of God, he will be able to conquer, but it's only for a period of time. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So the whole earth is going to align itself with the worship of this leader. Not only just a king, but a king who could die and then come back to life. I mean, who can stand against that? And people will be falling on their face before this king, this leader. He says here, if, if anyone's be taken captive, if to captivity he goes. If anyone's to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. In other words, God says during this time, he is going to allow this Antichrist to rule and have power and have authority, even to killing those who follow Jesus. And John says, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. In verse 11, we get introduced to another beast. So we have, we have Satan calling forth the Antichrist, and now and that Antichrist comes out of the sea of humanity. Now, Satan is going to call from the land, and another being is going to arise. Notice this. He says that it arises from the earth. It has two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. John says that a third part of this group arises from the land. And, and what this this beast or this person's role is going to be is to direct everybody's attention to the Antichrist. And he is going to say, look at the Antichrist. Look how awesome he is. He must be God. And, and you must worship him. And what this, what this, one, what this person is going to do, what, this, what I call the false prophet, the one who proclaims the power of the Antichrist, he will be able to perform great signs. Look at verse 13. Even making fire come down from heaven earth in front of the people. So you have a group of people who are looking for a spiritual experience who've divorced that from absolute truth. And now they're looking for some kind of experience that confirms that they should put their faith in this person. Maybe there's a few who's been holding out. Maybe there's a few who just weren't convinced. You know, there's always a segment of the population who will say, you know what? I see what happened. I saw, I saw the Antichrist resurrect, but I'm just not sure yet. Well, along comes this false prophet. And he will be proclaiming the greatness of the Antichrist. He'll have the same power and authority as the Antichrist, but here's what he's going to do. He's going to perform signs and miracles. And he's going to say all these signs and miracles point to the Antichrist and to his deity. 
So for those who are holding out, once the false prophet shows up, they're going to be convinced that the Antichrist is God among us. Look what happens. Verse 14. And by the signs that it allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So the, the false prophet says, you know what? It's not just enough to worship the Antichrist. You need to have, you need to have an image. You need to have a statue of him. And I would imagine, the text doesn't tell us this, but I can imagine that, that we can have statues all over the world, right? Of his image of the Antichrist, and you're to come and bow at his feet at the statue. This reminds me of a story in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember that story? Maybe you heard that. Last time you heard it was when you were a kid or vacation Bible school, but King Nebuchadnezzar sits at this massive statue, right? And it's, it's the semblance of him. He, King Nebuchadnezzar wants to be worshiped, right? So he calls, after he gets the statue built, he calls for all the tribes to come together under his kingdom. And he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. we got the band over here. Okay, got the band. When you hear the music, your responsibility when you hear the music is to drop on your faces before the statue, which in essence is me, and you're going to worship. And today we're going to find out who's aligned with me, who's aligned with the worship of the king, Versus those of you who might still be holding out. So the music starts, and I don't know how many people were there. Maybe it was a thousand people. Here's King Nebuchadnezzar on the stage, and he's looking out across the people. Man, as soon as that music starts, everybody falls on their face. And man, the king is just soaking up all that worship until he looks in the back back there, and he's these three guys that are just standing there. And he looks around at his leaders and said, Was I not clear? Hey, bring those three guys up. Maybe we need to um, realign them brings those three guys up, and he says, guys, you know, I thought I was pretty clear, so let me, let me just go back over what's happening here and what's expected of you. When the music starts playing, you are to bow your face before me and worship the statue, which in essence is worshiping me. So just to make sure we're all clear, I'm going to give you another chance. The music's going to start. Everybody's going to bow, and make sure that if you, you understand, if you don't bow, you see that oven right over there? That oven is where you're going to be thrown. So maybe the drummer starts first. I don't know. Maybe the guitarist hits a strum on the guitar. Everybody hits the ground. These three guys don't bow. Okay, guys, what's up? These three guys look at the king and say, King, we, we understand what you're saying. It's not a part that we're confused. King, what you need to understand is that there's only one God that we bow to, and it's not you. And it will never be you. So whether you throw us in the fire or not, doesn't matter because our holy God, our God whom we, whom we follow, whether he kills us or whether we live, we will not bow the knee to anything else or anyone else or any statue or any king ever from this day forward. So king, have as you will, but I will not bow the knee. Jump back to Revelation. There's going to be a time where the false prophet steps forward and says, okay, anybody that's undecided, Let's put up a statue in your city. Let's put a statue up in your town square. And, and we're going we're gonna to ask you to come and worship and bow the knee. Matter of fact, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take those statues. Look what he does. He says, verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak. Now, this gets crazy, folks. This, this false prophet has the power to command a statue to speak. Now, I don't know if that's technology or if that's... Exactly what we see right here in, I don't know how that's going to work out. I just know that the Bible's true and he says that he's going to give this statue the ability to speak. 
And if there were any doubters at that point, it's all going to fade away. Because now we have a statue that can speak blasphemous things. We have a leader who's unified the whole world. Racism goes away. Divisions go away. Everybody's got some money. Everybody's getting power. And get this, this is another thing that you've got to know, and you're going to see this in the weeks ahead. Another big aspect of the Antichrist and his kingdom, get this, is sexual immorality. On a scale you have never even experienced in your life before. Not only is all of the inhibition going to be cast away and cast aside, but anything goes under the Antichrist. And, and look, if people are looking for experience and they're looking for their truth to be truth, when they line up for this king, when this king says, you can do whatever you want, I think you know how this is going to go. Well, if we've got this statue set up and we've got the Antichrist who everyone's worshiping, then we have, we have the three parts that we need here. And three should make you pause for a moment. Because the God that we worship, while he is one, he is yet three. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What is, what is Satan up to here? Because remember, he defiles everything that is holy and right. He he, he, he makes us truth and error together and lies like no one could even imagine. So what is Satan up to here? We have, we have Satan calling forth the beast who then is slain but then resurrects. And then we have Satan calling forth another being, the false prophet. And get this, we have before us in this text the unholiest of all unholy trinities. A phony knockoff of the real Trinity. We have Satan acting as God the Father. We have the Antichrist acting as though he is, he is the Son and, and the false prophet acting as though he's the Holy Spirit. We have, we have a mirror image of our holy triune God, but in a way that brings destruction. You see how this works. Notice what happens. Verse 16. Also it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. Here it is to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. It would only make sense that to make sure that everything's aligning to the Antichrist and to the authority of Satan and his throne, it would only make sense that we need to somehow designate between those who are with us and those who are against us, right? It only makes sense. We need to have a membership in our unholy Church, for lack of a better term. Because we're going to worship, we need to know who's ours. We need, to know, we need to know who's with us. Because it's only those people who need to benefit. Look, if, if, if there's somebody out there who is rejecting the Antichrist, they need to be dealt with. They, they shouldn't be able to support themselves. They shouldn't be able to eat. They shouldn't be able to buy and sell. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to present a mark that you would either take in your right hand or in your forehead, and that, in that moment, when you take that mark, maybe you line up in the town square and there's the, the statue of the Antichrist that's talking and the false prophets doing all these signs and wonders, and there you are, and you are fully committed because remember, God has created you to worship, and what better person to worship than the one who can do miracles? And the one who tells me that my sexual immorality is okay? And the one who tells me that, that my truth can be my truth? And who tells me that I can have spiritual experiences that I've been looking for. And so I'm going to line up and to make sure that, that the beast knows, the Antichrist knows that I'm with him, I'm going to take this mark in my hand or in my forehead and make no mistake about it, at that very moment, at that very moment, there is no turning back. 
Verse 18. This calls for wisdom. I'm so glad that John put that in there because I'm going to tell you, there's a whole lot of non-wisdom for this verse and the one before it. My goodness, there's all kinds of, again, I'll use this term, wacky stuff out there on the internet when it comes to the mark of the beast and this particular verse, the controversial set of verses. There's all kinds of wacky stuff out there. So isn't it interesting that John would say, hey, you in 2023, use some wisdom when you read this text and try to interpret it. I think that would do us well. Notice what he says. He says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, for years, um, I've been told and I've read that, that the mark that you're going to take is going to be 666. It might be, but here's another option here. It's something I, I really dug into this week, and by looking at the text and looking at the Greek behind it, uh, this sentence structure really gave me some trouble, and then, I, then it kind of dawned on me what I think is actually being said here. I'm not so certain anymore that the actual mark is going to be 666. Here's why. Look at this. He says, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. This idea of 666 may actually mean this actually represents the kingdom of the Antichrist. So what do we have here? We have Satan, we have the Antichrist, and we have the false prophet. All three of them labeled as six. Six being the imperfect number. Six being the day that humanity was created. Six being the number of humanity, number of man. Seven being perfection. Seven being the completion of God. Remember, six days God created, but then on the seventh day he rested. So between the sixth and the seventh day, we have imperfection versus perfection. We have something that misses the mark versus something that hits the mark. So between this, what we have in the 666 is the number of the beast in his kingdom. Whether that's the mark or not, I do not know. But I can tell you this, that 666 represents the fallenness of man and all the brokenness and all the sin and all the blasphemy that is going to be happening during this time. And people are going to be asked to choose whom they're going to serve. And as we will see in the chapters ahead, when those who choose something other than alignment with this system, this kingdom, this beast, this Antichrist, when they choose something else, they are choosing death. Because this Antichrist is not going to tolerate anyone in the middle. I want you to notice that at this point in history, at this point in history, there is no gray area, there is no middle ground. You are either with them or against them. You're either in the system, you're either part of the kingdom or you're not. But the reality is that's no different than it is today. We would be told that there are many ways to heaven, there are many ways to utopia, there are, there are many ways, but all religions lead to the same place. Well, that's a lie none other than from the one who lies the best, Satan himself. The fact is there really is only two Groups of people in this room, watching online and in this world, those who've surrendered their life to Christ and those who have not, period. There's no neutral ground. You were created to worship. There is no vacuum inside of you that says, well, if I'm not worshiping God, I'm just going to hover in this middle place. Even if you're atheistic, I would argue that even if you're atheist, you don't even believe in a God of any kind, you still worship. It doesn't matter if you are separated from every form of religion in the world, you are still worshiping something. There is no place in your life of this vacuum or void where you are not aligning your life to something, 
whether it be money or power or sex or whatever you want to put in that place, there is something you're giving your life to. For many, it's a bottle or a hypodermic needle in their arm. Or the next time they can roll up a joint and smoke some marijuana, they are giving their life to something. You were made to worship. Just as an airplane is built to fly, a car is made to drive, you are worshiping something. Notice that in Revelation, in this tribulation, there is no middle ground. But let me offer to you today, there is no middle ground today. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. Because folks, I am convinced. I'm convinced that time is short. Honestly, I don't see anything else that needs to be lined up to prepare for the next great event on God's calendar. It's all here. The, the, look, the seeds are sown. The field is ripe for this kind of leader to come forward. And I'm going to tell you, the world is going to fall all over themselves to worship this leader. So there is no middle ground. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. And I would encourage you to choose soon because time is running out. Where do you stand? What has your heart? Something does. What is it? You do well in this moment of worship and invitation to examine your heart. Father in heaven, your grace is sufficient. Your love is never ending. And while we see what's happening in this great book that John provided for us, we see the wrath, we see the hardship, we see what's coming. But Father, just as Paul said to the church at Thessalonica that the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well today. So Father, I pray that this fellowship would choose whom they're going to serve. That this is not a game to be played. This is not something to be toying around with. That you sent your son to die a horrific death that we may have life. And Father, you created us in our mother's womb. You knit us together with a desire to worship something. I pray this morning that as we examine our own hearts, that we could see what it is we truly worship. And Father, if there's anything there other than you, that we would use this time we have left together to make that right. Father, time is short. I believe the trumpet's about to blow. I believe, Lord, that in my lifetime, in my lifetime, I could see you return. So it's imperative, Father, we choose today whom we're going to serve. Have your will in your way. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist Church.